Hey guys, so here we are today with Adam Simmons, uh, Chief Strategy Officer at RDX uh, Radix. Uh, Adam, how are you? I'm good today. How are you? Good, 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 good. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, really looking, been looking forward to this. Um, looking to hear your views um, on Radix, hear what you guys have been up to and how you guys are um, growing. Um, so for people watching, let's start with uh, what Radix is and uh, uh, yeah, what, what your mission is. So Radix is a layer one distributed ledger technology. Um, so we are a layer one network similar to say Ethereum or Solana or Avalanche, if, you, if you've heard of those. And we're specifically focused on the space around decentralized finance. So that kind of takes us nicely to what our mission is, which is really quite simple if ambitious, which is that we want to give developers everything they need to obsolete traditional finance. And that, that's us. We, we have the long-term goal of getting the entire $400 trillion global financial system onto a decentralized network such as Radix. But what, what, what does that mean when you talk about actually, you're still talking about moving away from the whole world of banking and creating this brand new system instead? Like where do you guys even start with something like that? So the... To, to take it right back to the start, like what is decentralized finance? So if you think the entire purpose of the global financial system is to efficiently allocate capital based on risk and reward. And it typically does that on a set of rules. And if you go way, way back in, in time and think of how every kind of commerce or financial system worked, it started back with just bartering and you had to see physical people be next to them and, and trade with them. Then as we evolved and we had larger settlements and things, it became impractical to need to be physically transferring money between people. So we created the banking system and you had these trusted intermediaries who had ledgers and they would update their ledger on one branch and just send a message to the other branch saying, oh, debit Adam's account this amount um, and put it into Lawrence's account, for example. And that worked really well. And there's a really good analogy here to information sharing. So if you think in original like caveman times, the only way, only way to share information with another human was to physically see them and you would talk to them. And then we had great innovations like the printing press and we had newspapers and books and everything else as a way to share like one to many through these trusted intermediary sources. And then along came the internet and the internet for information meant that it wasn't just one to many, you could have many to many relationships with moving information. But the financial system didn't go the same way. It, you still have this one-to-many where the bank or the central institute is the gatekeeper of how you interact with the financial world and what opportunities your capital has and how capital flows globally. And what decentralized finance basically unlocks is that ability to have that many-to-many -many connection. So you can directly interact with financial product services that are, are running on the network on basically a, a smart contract and it does the banking or not just banking any financial service just more efficiently because you don't have these intermediaries you don't have multiple steps and that unlocks one obviously a huge amount of efficiency it offers more opportunity and competition within the market for both capital and people providing financial services and it does it more efficiently and cheaply and i mean with that i mean when we talk about um doing things faster cheaper um, what, what are the limitations to such a system? I mean, are, are we talking about a system that goes outside the world of regulation? Like, so is there regulation and decentralization? Can they live symbiotically? Yeah, so regulation is just rules, basically. So if you if you do want to put regulation into, say, decentralized finance, you can. And we've already seen that with like cryptocurrency. So if you go back to the early days of crypto exchanges, you there was basically no regulation. There was no rules. There was anything you just logged in, traded some tokens or coins, whatever. Nowadays, any reputable exchange, you're going to have to do KYC and AML checks, which uh, so know your customer and anti-money laundering checks. So prove your identity, register an account properly. And that's regulation coming into crypto. Now, in decentralized finance, that is still really, really new. But there's already things going on looking at how do you actually bring regulation and is it needed into this space? And our view, very holistically, is that's not our decision to make. Our right. goal is to provide that infrastructure and give builders everything they need to be able to obsolete traditional finance. Part of that could be creating regulated frameworks. So one of the big discussion points at the moment is around, if you look at um, institutional 
money, for example. They can't actually engage with decentralized finance in many ways because they have to know the counterparty that they're, they're trading with. So one big thing that's coming out um, in the industry is this idea of could you have these these safe harbors where it like um, one of the big platforms, Aave, for example, is rumored of having like Aave Pro and things like that, where it's only for verified accounts and they can only interact with other verified accounts. So you still have that same opportunity, but you've got a bit of regulation in place there. Um, the other nice thing as well is because this is all automated effectively and done on a set of rules, you can have fast, potentially you could have far smarter regulation on how things are done. Um, so to give an example, you could have like only X amount of your net worth could go into a high risk position. I'm not saying that's something that I would advocate for or think is a good idea, but you could apply something like that rather than say just a blanket rule that you'd have in financial services at the moment. Like if you've got over a million dollars net worth, then you can invest in startups. You can suddenly have a much more tactical approach if you so wanted to. Sure. So, I mean, is it something whereby people have more control over their decisions when it comes to finances like, and, and again sorry, that sounds like a bit of a leading question let me just go, go put a bit more context to that most people don't understand what they're doing with their money right like yep. that, that, that that's true if if people understood what they were doing with their money when they turn 21 or whenever 18 or 16 whenever they start working they'd open up like uh, an account and they'd have by like an S&P tracker or an MSCI world tracker they pay a percentage, 100 bucks a month, 100, whatever, 100 pounds a month, 400 pounds a month into that tracker, right? That's it. They're not. The, the, the thing is, is that it's such a noisy world that when, when you're going to decentralization, decentralized finance, isn't it really just about which companies are going to market themselves the best? And, and then you're, you're expecting these people really. So, and again, the regulations there, I, I get that, but you're expecting them to make the decisions for themselves. Otherwise, decisions that, let's be honest, up until now, humans have proven they're fairly ill-equipped to make. Oh, that's a really good question. And I think this is where there's a slight separation between having a permissionless open network for decentralized finance and that meaning that everyone needs to directly like drink from the fire hose. And that doesn't have to be the case. It's just that the choice is there. So to give a, a, a notable example in, in DeFi today, even when we're in like the most early stages possible, like we're in the clearly in the innovator stage still, there's about $200 billion in DeFi out of a $400 trillion financial system. So fractions of a percent. Even at that point, some of these strategies that people have been using, like lending and borrowing different places to earn more yield by leveraging up, for example, are really complex. So you start seeing interface platforms come out. So an example is like Yearn Finance. And Yearn Finance have these things called vaults. And those vaults are just smart contracts. And you lock some stable coins in there. And the logic of the smart contract automatically goes and interacts with DeFi to make a return. So essentially, they they are offering that service to automate your portfolio management sure. in that case. But the really critical point is you don't have to use it. So I could go as a user and go, well, I don't wanna pay a small percent to yearn to manage that vault for me. I, will, I could just go and copy exactly what they're doing. And I could choose to take the time, effort, research to go and manage that directly myself. Or I could choose to put it into a service. And you can get, there's other services being made all the time of people creating automated systems. It gives the user a choice, but critically, it gives the service provider the opportunity to compete in this market. And this is one of the big things that at Radex we've really nailed in on, which is the buildability side of DeFi is what's incredible. So if you think today, if you want to launch a financial service or a financial product, you probably have to be a very large registered company and things like that. If you look at, say, Uniswap in decentralized finance, Hayden Adams started that. He got laid off in his job. Um, he then started Uniswap. And it's now managing billions of dollars of funds successfully. And it's one of probably the biggest decentralized financial product um, in market today. And he did that by learning himself with an incredibly complex tool set. Now, as the industry evolves, and like one of the things Radex is doing is trying to make that buildability so much simpler, you unlock a whole ton of new talent and new choice for end customers. And that creates competition. And that is exactly what a financial system wants is competition so that capital is competing to be used sufficiently as possible. So, I mean, that, that said, um, with regards to the competition, 
where, where, where are we going in terms of, of ensuring that the end user, the consumer is actually protected? Because one thing, again, you know, that you and I have discussed this previously, yes, with, com- with competition comes more opportunity, but there also comes more scams. And there's something that, and that's one thing. So I hesitated before I actually like, I thought, am I going down this route now? Um, but yep. Willow, we should discuss this. There, there's, you know, there's a lot of companies out there. There are scams. It's so difficult for a retail customer who's sitting there, who has just got, you know, a normal bank account, they've had a mortgage, um, for them to be able to identify what companies are genuine, right? What are the, what are the Radixes, the Uniswaps and, you know, what are the not so, you know, the, the, the not so legitimate ones? Um, how does how does the consumer go about making that decision and what should they be doing? So this is a, a really good question. And I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it. First up is the end user doesn't need to make that decision if they don't want to. So again, this comes back to this concept of choice. If you're an end user and you go, I don't want to work out which are reputable brands or like which, which applications or decentralized applications I should be putting my money in or moving to or anything else, then you can just move higher up the chain, so to speak. So you can sit there and go, okay, well, I'll use something like a Yearn Vault or maybe, and, and I'm going to get caught up on this because it's not decentralized, but say like crypto.com, for example, if crypto.com was running on a decentralized way, you'd be like, oh, well, I know that brand. I'll put my money in there and I'll earn a few percent interest on it. And they're going out and using the wider ecosphere. The difference is, is that the user can choose to do that if they want to, or they can choose not to. So then you've just got basically a a surfacing and trust issue. And this is where, again, these are not new problems. The internet has exactly the same problem. There are some very, there's scam websites. There's websites that have dangerous content on them. Sure. where you could lose your money or anything else. But most people use search engines and d- that helps them identify. And there's like different ways of sharing content and there's a whole heap of issues potentially there. Um, but on the whole, people find things they want on the internet and access it in a safe way. And it has made the system a lot better and access to information a lot better than it was prior to the internet. So I'm not coming on here and saying decentralized finance is this magical wonder bullet. We're all going to be billionaires and global utopia is going to happen. What I'm saying is it's just, it's fundamentally better than the traditional financial system in pretty much every way. And it will still have problems. There will still be these risks like you identified, but those risks exist in the current financial market. I mean, um, if you look in like the UK, um, PPI, I'm sure we've all had scam phone calls of people saying that they can claim back your your PPI claims and things like that. Have you seen this new diesel claim? If you bought a car between this year and that year. Oh, the the Volkswagen one. Yeah. It's madness. Like, look, it's it's great that there are checks and balances in place, but it's becoming so hard for people to know what is genuine and what is not genuine. I, I think with anything, and again, you know, you and I, have, you and I have discussed. Oh, I think I think we discussed this pretty much. Like, you know, my my background in, in finance, and it comes down to the regulation. And I, I don't see uh, decentralized finance being a mainstream thing unless until the governments have caught up. And uh, I mean, are you at Radix? Are you sitting around? Because sometimes I feel that you know we're sitting around. And I'm not blaming the government. It's not the government's fault. I think that they're completely overwhelmed um, with with running, not countries anymore, but running a planet at the moment. Um, are you kind of sitting there waiting for governments to catch up with regulation? Is there anything that you feel you need to see a change in the market for Radix to really propel to that next stage? I mean, you guys have pretty much propelled anyway, but... So I wouldn't say that anyone's particularly waiting. It's more a case of having a clear understanding of what what regulation may be coming and working with the industry to do that. And so this is where you get kind of like a self-regulated industry or whether it's being regulated by governance. Now, one of the tricky parts of, of decentralized finance is obviously it doesn't know borders on the whole. It's, it's a global financial system running on a single network, instantly able to move between anywhere potentially. So there needs to be a, a global cooperation on this. There will also be national, different national rules on how things are done. And this creates a lot of challenges for governments and regulators. The key thing is there's a few like single principles of DeFi that I think are non-negotiable. So it does need, the network itself needs to be permissionless. And what that basically means is anyone can access this. At any point they can go and they are, they're free to move around as they wish. 
And if you look at like traditional financial systems, that's benefited a lot in the UK, for example, um, the name escapes me now, but there was a new regulation for switching bank accounts easily. It was like smart switch or something like that. And that added a lot more competition because people weren't locked into their bank that they used as heavily as they were before. And that made customer service better, it gave users more choice. So that still leads to a situation where you can have regulation. So things like KYC and AML, but it creates new problems as well. So if you are, how do you prove someone's identity if they just own a wallet? what what risks are associated with that especially if you've got a immutable public ledger with information of like that person is identified that's their history of money well then actually if i send you money today you can't go and look at the account or you can't go and look at my account and see every single income and outgoings of that account but sure. today on most public networks you can and then so some smart people then go well okay we'll make a privacy focused chain but that creates new regulation problems because if you've got a privacy focused chain that by its nature potentially stops any kind of uh, know your customer or know your business and anti-money laundering stuff, which could lead to negative consequences. So this is a hugely complex system, which on top of that is opening whole new types of financial instrument and financial products that just couldn't have been imagined before. So using the example of Uniswap, uh, which is an automated market maker, a, a DEX, um, as a user, when you go and put some capital into that to earn a trading fee when people swap between the two you put in there, you are ex exposing yourself to certain risks such as um, impermanent loss. Um, but in exchange for that risk, you are getting a fee every time someone swaps with it. Now, how should that, forget about regulation, how should that be taxed? What if some, what if a bad actor uses that pool to swap? Is it the fault of the person who put money in? Or is it the first person who started the pool? Well, you can't do everyone who put it in because I could put in a dollar as easily as I could put in a million dollars. You've got all of these problems that they will need to get sorted out, but it's in a way that it doesn't limit the technology. And again, you can look at the internet as a really good example of this when you've got things like net neutrality laws um, and an open internet as being so powerful. Sure, it has some downsides. As we said, there's scam websites, um, dangerous content, viruses, whatever. But on the whole as society, we agree that an open internet is a net benefit despite those risks. And so when you're looking at this from a regulation perspective, it's not just saying, here's what we did before, let's apply that to this new system. Just in the same way as you can't have, um, you can't have information laws applied in the same way as they may have been with like books or newspapers and apply that to a social media platform. They may present similar symptoms or challenges, but you have new tools at your disposal to try and minimize the harm while maximizing the game. And I think that's the big piece that the, the governments and regulators need to understand the space really well and lean into those opportunities while minimizing the risks where and where they can. And to be fair to them, I mean, it's still very, very early in terms of the technologies in order for them to say, hey, let's make these decisions now, um, you know, which are going to have an impact in five, 10 years from now, yeah. by which point the technologies would have greatly evolved as yep. would the use case, right? The way in which we actually use, yep. uh, we're using these technologies. Um, look, coming back to Radix, it's an exciting project. Um, yep. What is your story? How did you guys get started? So um, Radix actually started way, way back in like 2012, 2013 time when our founder, Dan, um, got hit by the Bitcoin bug. So um, he's from a coding development background. Nice bugs to get Yep. So he, he suddenly saw it and was like, hey, this is really cool. Um, read the Bitcoin white paper, saw the premise of like a global decentralized network. Um, and what that could gain and then start playing around with it because uh, obviously it's all open source. He started having a play with the technology and was like, hang on, if this is going to do a fraction of what it says, it needs to scale a lot. And by scale a lot is like, if you look at say something like Ethereum, Ethereum runs at about 15 transactions per second at the moment. That is clearly not going to be able to cope with even a fraction of the global financial system. And anyone who's um, following like the, the cryptocurrency space knows that one of the problems with Ethereum and why companies like Radix exist um, and have been springing up is because of gas fees. So to use that network originally was super, super cheap because hardly anyone was using it. And so transaction fees were low. But as demand has gone up and this cap of how much throughput it has, has got basically constrained, you have a supply and demand problem. Prices go way up. So it's not uncommon at the moment to pay hundreds of dollars to do a simple like swap on an automated market maker or on Uniswap on Ethereum. So 
what how much scalability do you need is the question that Dan basically started with. And the answer is you need millions of transactions per second if you're going to have this one unified network. And to put that in perspective, today, the, the highest claimed uh, TPS that I know of outside of Radix is uh, Solana. And they're running at like 65,000 transactions per second. And obviously, in the context of Ethereum's 15, that is a huge improvement. But one of our core tenants at, at Radix is do the right thing, um, even if it's the hard thing. And so we work backwards. We go, okay, if you had $400 trillion of financial activity occurring on this network, what do you actually need? And work backwards from there. And that basically led Dan on a journey for many, many years, um, refining the technology, ripping it up, starting again, refining. Was there, was there a lot of scalable. failures? I, I, I think that, that's one thing I'd yep. like to discuss with you. Like with Rayon, you know, we've been very open about like our successes and our failures. Um, but I think now everyone's like looking at these companies, not appreciating how much work has gone into them. Um, and there's also a belief that there's a lot of luck, right? With a lot of these companies, they just caught a tailwind at the right time. But, you know, I mean, did Dan experience, was, were there a lot of failures? Were there a lot of like stopping and starting again in the early days? Uh, not just not just the early days. So probably the, the most notable was back in 2019 and the previous version of our consensus mechanism, um, which is unique to Radix um, at the time is called Tempo. Um, and we got a lot of press because Tempo was tested on a decentralized set of servers, um, spun up, replicated the entire history of Bitcoin, every transaction, um, and it did in about an hour. And it peaked out, at, no, so it averaged at 1.4 million transactions per second. And this is back in 2019. And we're like, this is great. We're ready to go to Beatnet. We're ready to go. And huge amount of attention, looking really, really positive, blew anything else out the water in terms of that throughput. And yeah, everything was queued up. And Dan found a few kind of edge cases that could cause problems down the line. I was just like, if we launch this, this will not meet that end state that we want. Okay. So we're not going to launch it. And that that was a huge blow because you're suddenly like you're revved up to go so it's back to the drawing board again take the good parts of tempo um now understanding some more of these edge cases and going okay how can we how can we evolve from that and that's where our, our current version of consensus uh, cerberus came from and cerberus we haven't done a big tps test because in in principle it never reaches a scalability limit and the reason for that is Cerberus scales very similar to the internet. So it has uh, unlimited linear scalability. So if one node could do one transaction per second, if you put 10 nodes in, you can do 10 transactions per second. And that can just continue forever. And so that basically means as you get more demand, you add more infrastructure and you can scale more just like the internet does basically with servers. And so when you're looking at that point, you're like, okay, you've now solved one problem, but that on its own wasn't enough. We're like, well, should we just have a general blockchain? Actually, when we were looking at the market, this is, our CEO peers was really astute on this, that DeFi was just starting to become a thing, as in like a term. And it's it's hilarious. You can look back to like the 2014, 2015 era of, of Radex, and there's some case studies of like, oh, imagine if you had a decentralized exchange. Oh, imagine if you could lend money um, out on a network uh, like this. Talking about, I, 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 honestly, for transparency, I thought it was nonsense. I didn't think it would work. Like, I remember yep. the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I was like, mm, not sure about that one. That doesn't sound right to me. Yep. Right. And, and these things, like, it, it makes sense. People are skeptical. It's a new technology. But yeah. what was, it, it didn't have a term of, of DeFi. And so what, we've, what we're taking now, and like, not, not failures, but opportunities, is like, well, how do you actually code smart contracts? Is that a problem? And we, we spoke to thousands of developers, um, and DeFi developers specifically. Um, and all of them came back and were like, 90% of our time is set trying to prevent exploits and hacks. Yeah. In, and that's because of smart contracts today are built on Ethereum in the, um, and run on the Ethereum virtual machine encoded in Solidity. And that's, without getting too in-depth, that's a message-based platform. And the easiest way I can describe the difference between that and how you build on Radix is using the analogy of a video game engine. So if you think before video game engines, you could make fantastic video games, but you had to start by coding how gravity worked, how lights, light worked, how physics worked. That's not only incredibly complex, but incredibly time consuming. And anyone who remembers back those early games, days of video games would also know that if you made a mistake, it was a really bad user experience. Suddenly you'd, you'd fall through the world and it was annoying. You'd restart your game, maybe lost. I started on Spectrum. So uh, I'm showing my age there. Spectrum, yep. the Amiga 500. 
So you, you've probably fallen through a few worlds or uh, clipped a couple of walls in your time. Um, and in a game that's annoying, but in, in decentralized finance, basically that's happening now. You go, oh, I'll put a million dollars in here. Oh, whoops, I forgot to make that table actually solid. Oh, that million dollars has fallen through the world. That's obviously not a good scenario. So all this time and effort spent trying to fix those potential exploits or, or bugs. What we've done with Radix Engine is basically made a game engine for finance and for decentralized finance. And just as like the game engine suddenly meant that developers for video games could spend most of their time working on features and creating cool levels and gameplay interactions, they didn't have to worry about core physics. The same can be said for Radix Engine is doing that for decentralized finance. And again, this is just the next stage in the problem. And then you, you hit other growth pains that like regulation, as we've touched on, is another thing which is going to have to be worked out. And there's going to be bumps. The reason why I'm so, to use the industry term, bullish on DeFi as a whole, and as DeFi as a whole, not just Radix, is to me, it's inevitable. It is inevitable because decentralized finance just does or does what global finance wants to do better, which is efficiently allocate capital. It does it faster, cheaper, and far more competitively on all sides. So it will win, just in the same way that the internet was inevitably going to win because oh, no, it solved no. information better. I mean, I'm, I must just, I'm, I'm slightly different in terms of the fact, I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, genuinely, but mm. I think that is it better? Probably. Um, but that brings me on to one thing that obviously, you know, we find in all areas of finance, and you touched on it just now, is with regards to the use of the implementation of smart contracts, blockchain technologies, and you touched on it with hacking. How much more secure are smart contracts and blockchain technologies versus, you know, the, our current centralized system? So that is a, a pretty Hard deep question. question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I say it's a pretty deep question because it depends what you mean by that. Like, well, could there's... someone hack the entire system and just, you know, I mean, you know, I, I heard someone say recently that, you know, oh, essentially, you know, like Bitcoin is unhackable. But... So to, to go conceptually here, like yeah. the, you, you can have the argument the code is law, basically. So if the code is fine, then it it will execute always. If you look at like a traditional financial system where you've got say people in there or multiple organizations there's there's points of failure multiple points of failure that can go wrong mm. um, so you eliminate those sort of risks but if you look at solidity smart contracts or ethereum smart contracts today they're message based and so when people go oh, i've got i've got some ethereum in my wallet you actually don't what you have is a a smart contract for we'll use usdc as an example here the usdc smart contract got a message saying, update your internal ledger on the smart contract to say that this wallet address has this much USDC. But it's just a message to update it. It doesn't actually live in your wallet. And so this is where you can get quite a few exploits because suddenly you're, due to limitations of the language or simplicity, you are trying, you're, you're giving a lot of blanket permissions. So say you when you go and swap USDC for say USDT on Uniswap, you are actually giving Uniswap, the smart contract swapping app, permission to update your account's balance on these other smart contracts. So you're not putting in the USDC and getting USDT out. You're just saying, hey, Uniswap smart contract, go and tell the USDC one to minus that amount from my account and go and tell the USDT one to add this much to my wallet account. But your wallet doesn't actually have that. But you've also given blanket permission that that app can update it forever for any amount. And so if you don't completely trust that smart contract, in this case, Uniswap, or it had a, a flaw, they could impact those balances. And so that causes security problems. And a lot of the things you're seeing in terms of, like there's been over a billion dollars of hacks in DeFi in the last 12 months or so. And many of these are from fringe scenarios like that. And it's not the, it's usually not a bad actor in the sense of like, it's not like the application was bad. It is someone exploiting it, usually when it's interacting with multiple other smart contracts. And so this is, again, another superpower of DeFi, which can cause problems, is interoperability. So because all these programs are basically running on the same network, all the smart contracts can interact. So you can suddenly have, as a developer, I've built this app. Okay, this does this one thing. And someone goes, hey, I could build an app that interacts with that app that does this thing. And now you're getting permissions and messaging going all around the place. And because you don't have that DeFi engine, 
like a game engine to make sure that the physics will work. You've got a bunch of different people, each writing physics from scratch or putting boilerplate code in to try and adhere to some kind of standards. The chance of there being something mismatched, which someone can later find and exploit, becomes super high. Just in the same way as in a video game before a game engine, the chance that you you program physics on every table apart from that one that was made of stone rather than wood, and oh, you forgot to make stone solid. And so you fall through that if you jump on that panel. That's impossible if you have a game engine because the game engine is taking care of all of those things for you. And that's what Radix is doing with the Radix engine for DeFi. So, and and, and for, for Radix, I've got to ask, like, what, what is next for you guys? Obviously, yeah, you, you've, you've started by saying, you know, well, the, you have the greatest ambition of ever of essentially turning the entire world into a, de well, the entire banking world into a de decentralized uh, system, which you can't really get a bigger ambition than that. Yep, it's um, pretty big. <laughs> so how, how do you guys go about making decisions as to what you're going to do next? How do you guys go about actually strategizing and saying right in order for us to achieve this the, these are the steps that need to occur and this is how we, we need to achieve this this is how we need to execute yeah so what we what we do is we work backwards and that's what we've always done which is you start at the endpoint what would what would this system look like or need to look like if we've achieved our mission and then you work back from there so the first point was like we we have a solution to scalability, but it's not the, the full unlocked um, shard space of Cerberus isn't until our Xi'an update, which is not the next one. Our next update is allowing smart contracts to actually go live on the network. Um, the update we had just had at the end of last year was actually releasing our programming language Scripto, which is based on Rust. And like that was done very deliberately because there's no point having the ability to deploy smart contracts if no one's built any. And no one can build any until they've started using the language and learning it and, and playing around with it. So right now, our focus is on how do we get developer engagement? And specifically, it's not just a case of, hey, let's throw money at developers and get a whole bunch of mercenaries. We honestly believe that building DeFi applications, if done well um, and with the right tooling, is probably the biggest development opportunity in this generation, because you have the chance to rewrite the financial system and have a share of that. And the barrier to entry is low with Scripto, so you can get started and really upskill. The next stage, though, is when you get those live is, well, suddenly now the challenge is how do you get capital on board? How do you incentivize liquidity in these applications? Because that liquidity itself creates more opportunity for more builders to come in. And well, then you've got systems in Radix like uh, Blueprints. So a, a simple concept here is when you upload code, you upload as a blueprint that other applications or developers can, can use. And that's great, that's utopian, but obviously developers need to pay bills. So another system we've got in there is the idea of developer royalties. So when you upload that blueprint, you can say every time this blueprint is used in a transaction, the network should automatically add a little fee sure. that goes back to the developer who made it. Okay, so now you've got, it's quick and easy to build with Scripto and the Radix engine. You're incentivized to do it through blueprints and royalties. That's gonna to lead to a lot of people building some really cool financial applications. Then you need to scale which takes us back full circle to how Radix started. But the point is you don't fix scalability now just to say, hey, we can do a million transactions per second. It's like, why do you need to do a million transactions per second today when no one's transacting? Well, you don't. So let's fix the next problem, which is developer problem, then incentivization, then you need to scale. And if you do all of those things right, you need to make sure that they keep being right all the way until the entire financial system's running. Interesting. and. Again, I mean, with with that, I mean, I'm going to push back somewhat on this. Mm -hmm. And what what are the challenges on that? Because again, it's such a huge undertaking. And I've got to be honest, you know, obviously, I'm very fortunate. I get to speak with a lot of um, companies in this space, in the crypto, fintech, and blockchain space. I dare I say, I think you guys have got the biggest ambition. Not only have you got the biggest ambition, you're actually doing it. Like you've actually made headway in doing it. So, I mean, and yeah, the. No, please go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say, of course, there's challenges. There's there's huge numbers of challenges. And that's what gets us up every day. Like one of the amazing things working at Radix is we have a team of probably some of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of working with who could go and work on anything um, and get jobs anywhere they wanted to. But they want to come and work at Radix because we see a world where a permissionless open financial system a decentralized financial system is going to be such a game changer globally, not just for opportunity, but equality of access to financial services, 
that it is a mission that will revolutionize society. And so we want to do this. Now, there's, of course, hard bits like Scripto. Like, it's a new language. We've made it. It's based on Rust, but you've got to upskill people. And by doing that, you're immediately throwing away, say, all of the existing DeFi ecosystem. So many other platforms go, hey, we'll be um, Ethereum virtual machine compatible. And you can use Solidity. So, you, oh, you deployed your app on, on Ethereum. Okay, you can deploy your DAP on this other network fairly simply, just copy and paste it over. Sure, you've now just shortcutted a bit of adoption because people don't have to reskill, but you've got the same problem and challenges that Solidity and the EVM have. So we've changed one problem, well, one long-term problem, which is that security and buildability of, of Solidity with, hey, we now need to onboard new developers. And those developers need to be skilled up and they need to learn. And obviously, the first few aren't going to have other people to learn off of. So you've got to nurture it and you've got to build it. And it's about building a movement rather than a flash mob. Sure. And that's that's one of the sort of challenges we have to we have to deal with. Do, 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 I have to, do you do you get involved at all in the recruitment side of, of the business? Um, so I I do somewhat because I hire quite a few people and have done over our team. So we're like we've we've uh, probably doubled three times in the last two years. No. Wow. Okay. In terms of in terms of headcount, but it is, and and that's the same across the board in the in the space because there's such yeah. a huge opportunity here. So. I interview everyone still. Like, uh, uh, I first of all, I, I think that it's important that, like you said, you, you hit on it. You know, you've got people in your team that could work anywhere and could do anything. I think in in many aspects, I think that I've definitely got people in the team that um, could do anything. I don't know if they could work anything. They're they're they're, they're they're quite a rebellious, we're quite a rebellious team. Yeah. Um, I don't know how well they'd fit into most company cultures. But, um, I, I've got to say that I, I actually think the biggest challenge now for any company, and, you know, like Rayon is no different, is just constantly finding the right people with the right attitude. And, you know, one thing we're seeing and we, which we hadn't seen before is that a lot of the companies on Rayon are now saying to us, um, don't worry about if they're just blockchain developers. Just find us developers that want to work in the blockchain space. And, you know, I think that we're seeing this shift in attitude from employers. I wonder if you guys mm. are changing. Are, are, you, are you open to taking on people that may not necessarily have the right relevant skills, but actually they are developers, they are engineers, um, but they've just got the most phenomenal attitude? So it depends on the role, obviously. But what I would say is like, we are growing so quickly that every single one of our, our job postings and things like that says, do you not sure you have all the skills you need, but like I'm really excited to work it. <laughs> Just send us, send us what you can do yeah. and why you think you would be an addition to the team and want to help us fulfill our mission. And yeah. if you've got those people, then you'll usually find a position for them if they, if they meet the culture and the skills and they've got the aptitude for doing it. Um, and the other piece I'd say as well is, that attitude of like, oh, they don't have to be a blockchain developer, they've just got to get the hang of it. Like, this is again, another reason why we think Scripto and the Radix engine is so powerful. Because sure. in the last two years, we the, the total value locked in DeFi has gone up by about 200x. It's gone from about a billion to about 200 billion. In that same time, the number of developers working in DeFi has only doubled. And we're talking like there was a report from Electric Capital saying they reckon there's only about 2,500 Web3 developers who are working in like production level right now. Yeah. Um, and a big reason for that is because Solidity is so difficult to use. And so the time to talent is huge. You then have huge amounts of stress because you're potentially building a production app that manages $100 million. And so like one of our product visions for Scripto is like, how can we make it as easy as possible for builders to make secure financial applications. Because if you unlock a thousand new developers into the space, and there's millions of developers globally, you can take this number from 2000 to 20,000 even. Imagine that rate of innovation if like 2000 of them went from a billion dollars to $200 billion in the system. Yeah. And that's, that's why developers are the key here. I was talking to someone at um, one of the big hedge funds and one of the big VCs recently. And, you know, they they very eloquently put that, you know, the supply of developers in this space um, is far outstripped by the demand from the company, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that actually it's going to be that way 
for quite some time. And until we see companies actually, like you said, like offering solutions like what you guys are offering, the training just isn't going to be there. It's, it's, not, it's not coming out of the universities, right? The developers largely are learning themselves. They're getting opportunities with the right organizations and they're kind of creating, like you said, they're building that future um, for, for themselves. But I mean, I mean, like again, like with yourselves, you say that you guys have double, sorry, you say you've tripled. Uh, doubled, doubled, doubled three times. Yeah, double three times. Yep. Okay. So again, I mean, um, what what are your what's the ambitions then for for the remainder of twenty twenty two? Like, where are you guys going to be twelve months from now? So twelve months from now, um, or just under, we'll have launched uh, Babylon, um, which is our next major release where smart contracts can be deployed on the network. So right now, people can build crypto. Um, as of a couple of weeks ago, they can now deploy that to a public test environment. Um, but that test environment is not a decentralized network. It's just a test environment. Later in the year, we'll have our alpha net, which will be on a consensus beta near the end of the year, and then the full release at the end of Q1 next year. And so our goal is onboard developers, both into our community to start building things, because they're the great thing about when you're trying to attract capital and people go, hey, $200 billion in DeFi, it's huge. No, it's tiny. tiny. It's 0.5% or so of $400 trillion. Wow. We are so early on that bell curve and there is so much innovation that can be done that if you unlock, if you create a great developer experience, it's people like who are watching this now, the developers on, on your platform will sit there and be like, they're the people who are going to build the future of finance. Yeah. We're just giving them the tools. Yeah. And if we unlock that if we basically take the brakes off innovation is the is the marketing buzzword yeah. um, of doing it there but that that's the goal these people build in if you look at something like uniswap or yearn finance like look into the background of the founders of those these hayden adams got laid off from his job taught himself solidity and built the first version of uniswap yeah and now that manages tens of billions of dollars yeah that's one guy started that up yeah. that's like when is the last time there was an opportunity like that if you give the people the tools that's where you get the innovation yeah i mean well, i've got to ask them well, like, on that i mean what, what what's your background how did how did you how did you end up radix like um so of all things um i i started off in the esports space um so i i was a youtuber back in the day um i then started doing some of my own content um then working behind the camera i then started at a video sharing platform um i was employee one on the business side there we grew that very large um then the whole youtube adpocalypse happened uh, one of our seed investors had been heavily involved in the crypto space and had always been like you guys should really look at it you should really look at it and we'd always put it off because we were like got a our business running great like yeah there's maybe some stuff there but it's quite new um and then we sat down after the apocalypse and like, actually, we could fix a lot of problems here. So um, I then co-founded another project that's still running successfully today. Um, got through that, um, exited that business and then discovered Radix about nine months after that. Had a phone call with peers and was just like, I, I need to work here. Like, I get it. And it comes back to my point of that's why do nice people want to work? Yeah, it's but it's also just like you, you just find these things where they make sense. Yeah. And to me, like DeFi makes sense. And it's very, very rare you get the opportunity to work in a field which has huge upside potential because it's practical and pragmatically solves problems, but also has a net societal good. Like usually you, you can pick, like go and work for a charity or go and work for a corporate, pick, pick one or the other. Very rare do you get them intersect. And with Radix, I get to do that every day. And that is hugely exciting and why I get up every morning. Well, no, look, it, it, it's exciting to say the least. I, I think that what we're seeing, and again, it's just, just from the traffic coming onto the round platform, we're seeing people that a year ago, two years ago, they weren't interested in working in crypto. They weren't interested in working in fintech for a fintech. And all of a sudden, we've opened up our platform. Originally, it was just for developers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we had one company say, hey, have you got salespeople on the platform? We're like, don't know. Uh, then, <laughs> yeah, then we had about 20 companies ask us. Um, and we're like, you know, maybe like, you know, there's more demand and we're missing something here. And we've opened up the platform to like a whole to everyone, basically. Right. And, yep. and people are interested to work in fintech, whether they're looking to work in the sales capacity, whether they're looking to looking to work in marketing, operations, 
um, or whether they're looking to, you know, work as a developer. Like, you know, they want to be in this space. And actually, someone mentioned this to me recently, and I saw a video from Andreessen Horowitz. They were saying that in the future, every company in some capacity is going to be a fintech company. And, and well, so this is, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, so one of one of the things when we originally were like, we're building specifically for DeFi is people came back and being like, doesn't that constrain your opportunity? And it's like, DeFi is what it is today is so early in the future. Like DeFi is anything where you're, you're moving around assets and an asset is anything with value. And suddenly when you think of that, because like, like a common one at the moment, obviously with the hype around NFTs is people are like, oh, can I launch an NFT on your platform? Yes. Okay. Can I do anything else? It's like, well, what you're thinking of as an NFT isn't just a board ape. Sure. It isn't just a pick. Like an NFT could be a deed to a property. It could be yeah. used as collateral in a loan. It could be like, and obviously I'm, I'm making very simple, a whole load of legal and regulatory stuff that no, would no, have to no, be no, there no, to right. make that happen. But like technologically- There's no advice here, so yeah. Yeah, te technologically, there's no reason that wouldn't solve that problem. And then that unlocks suddenly something which is traditionally a very illiquid asset, you could have as a, a liquid asset and use it as collateral elsewhere. You could incorporate it into this stack so much more efficiently than you can in traditional finance. Which again brings me back to why I think DeFi is inevitable. But what, what about these? I mean, touch on NFTs. What about these people paying like seventy-four million bucks for like a painting, right? A so-called mm -hmm. painting, or like, or, you know, yep. which is essentially an NFT. It, it, are we just going too far? Is that just ridiculous? Like from, you know, and again, showing my age here. It's from my perspective. You know, I don't like property particularly. Um, I did. I used to be very bullish on property, but and I think that if you can buy property cash fine but if you have to take a huge mortgage which is now largely inevitable for most people i don't see it as as a viable investment mm -hmm. right i don't i don't i'm not i've never been a big fan of debt with things like equities i get it with bitcoin as a store of value i get it right and i'm probably my my bullishness around bitcoin is largely based on the public perception attitudes changing i see it's kind of like mm -hmm. you said the early days of the internet but again, as a store of value, you know, there's Bitcoin doesn't produce anything. When you're mm -hmm. investing in an when you're investing in equities, at the very least, there's a company behind it. Whether it's a good company mm -hmm. or not is, is separate. When you're paying seventy-four million dollars for for a painting, an NFT, which I can go on Google Images and look mm -hmm. at you the exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Where where is the value? Well, so I I think that's a, a tricky one. Um, so on the one hand, yes, some of the prices paid are completely ridiculous for what NFTs often are, which is uh, you're just saying you're, you, you've got the unique ownership of, of that NFT. Cool. In the same way, though, art is, no, is in no way my strong suit, but it's exactly the same as if you get an, uh, an original famous piece of art versus a copy. Why is the original worth more? Well, because it's the original one. There's the history of it, where it's been shown, where it's been displayed. Like if I, if I had a painting that a friend of mine made, maybe they could sell it for 50 quid. If Elon Musk hung it up in his house and told everyone he'd hung up on his house and then gave it back to me and I could send it, I'd be like, oh, this was hung up on Elon Musk's wall. It'd probably sell for more than 50 bucks. That, 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 that's the historical artifact that adds the value. Yes. Right? Yeah. With, with regards to, the, you know, if somebody, the Mona Lisa, like, I don't <laughs> even want to pretend like to, to like, <laughs> guess what that must be worth. Let, let's just say for argument's sake, it's, it's a billion dollars, right? Yep. Someone creates an original NFT, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they haven't mixed the paint. They haven't thought about the anatomy of the human body and the smile, mm -hmm. haven't gone out, you know, like they've done it on their computer. They've essentially coded, yep. they've coded an image on their screen. Oh, they potentially, they potentially created it. I mean, digital art's a big thing, but the, the other thing which I think a lot of people don't realize about NFTs is that there's, there is a community to it and there's also things that you can get from it so there's nfts now which when you when you own it every or if you create it every time it's sold or moved you get a, a royalty back or um there's some which get you exclusive access to parties or onto super yachts and and things so and where at radix we when we say nft like that's going all into the realm of as i said that could represent the deed of a house how could that be incorporated into a system? Well, actually into a financial system that could do incredibly powerful things. So are the prices paid by some of this stupid? 
Yes. That, that has exactly. utility. And what you're talking about has utility going on to <laughs> essentially a ticket for a, a yacht. Yep. You know, great. That sounds that sounds fun. Um, you know, with regards to um any sort of like legal documents, again, it makes sense. When we start talking about art, it's not actually a human being that has, yes, fine, they might have done it on their computer. Mm-hmm. It's it's just for me, it just doesn't. Is it fungible? It's the question. <laughs> you know, I ask myself oh, yeah. that. Is it actually fungible, or is or is it non-fungible? That, that's what the, my, the my history of that is. Oh, and, and I see value, right? Like, if if you, mm. if for example, you can compute. Going back to the computer game example you used, if you can create something in a, in a computer game, an outfit, whatever, right, yep. something, and you know, you you can then like rent it out to people, or essentially sell it and make a royalty. Mm-hmm. I get that. Because again, there's you're producing something which is part of a whether it's the uh, metaverse, whatever, it's part of something where people can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know what? Maybe, maybe I just need to get my head around it. But maybe I, I, I struggle as well. The the way I I think logic I struggle with these is I I don't get art. Like I I wouldn't spend. I say don't get art. Obviously, I get art, but like no. I I wouldn't spend a million dollars on a painting. I'd be like, why would I spend a million dollars on a painting? People do, and people enjoy art. Like, yeah. so there's there's collectibles. Some people collect stamps, coins, feathers, yeah. stones. I don't know. Like, yeah. humans are strange stone. things. Yeah, <laughs> I, collect, I, I did. I used to collect um, like minerals and, and rocks, genuinely from yeah. all around the world. And yeah, but yeah, so I, I, I get it. I do get that. Um, but there is also a case that some people have a lot more money, and some of it's just buying it for the sake of buying right. it. Which, which again, but but again, so, so that's the thing. Which going back to, you know, I'm conscious of time, but I was going to say that, you know, like coming coming back to it, like that, that's that's my concern about things like blockchain technology, smart contracts. You know, how secure are they now? I know I, I appreciate they're going to be much more secure in the future, but how secure are they now? And, and I think it's something whereby when I see a lot more regulation in place, and it's coming. I think it might be slower than we'd like, but it's coming. I, I do think that's when. Uh, decentralized finance goes from being a two hundred billion dollar industry to two trillion dollars. <laughs> no, but multi, yeah, yeah, multi. Like, well, like you said, you know, there's reason, no reason why it can't you can't be a a fifty hundred trillion dollar industry, right? You know? Exactly, and and that's it's crazy to think of numbers that big um, until you start. And and this is again, I I would happily debate you on why I think DeFi is inevitable, but like the if you can do something that much more efficiently based on the actual objective of the industry and financial services of allocating capital, if you can do that so much more efficiently, people will just start using it. And people are like, oh, will regulation kill this? No, but it might change what we can do. It might change how we do things, yeah. may not change anything at all, but it will still happen just in the same way as you couldn't put the internet back in a box now. Like mm-hmm. there, are, there are places in the world where people have tried and actively try. And it's very well known that many people circumvent those blocks and the great firewalls, et cetera, because the internet is so powerful in transmitting information that it cannot be, it just instantly replaces anything else. Sure, I get that. We are, and and as I say to my team, we're sitting at the dawn of a whole new era of capitalism. And it is is pushed by these technologies. Adam, I just want to say, honestly, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure, Lawrence. It's been great to see you again and uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you too.